the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you establish your faithfulness in heaven itself. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. The heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness too in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. O Lord God Almighty, who is like you? You are mighty, O Lord, and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you, you steal them. You crushed Rahab like one of the slain. With your strong arm you, shattered, you scattered your enemies. The heavens are yours and yours also the earth. You founded the world and all that is in it. You created the north and the south. Tabor and Hermon sing for joy your name. Your arm is endured with power. Your hand is strong, your right hand exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, O Lord. They rejoice in your name all day long. They exult in your righteousness. For you are their glory and strength, and by your favour you exalt our horn. Indeed, our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, the Holy One of Israel. Once you spoke in a vision to your, your faithful people, you said, I have bestowed strength on a warrior. I have exalted a young man from among the people. I have found David, my servant. With my sacred oil I have anointed him. My hand will sustain him. Surely my arm will strengthen him. No enemy will subject him to tribute. No wicked man will oppress him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down his adversaries. My faithful love will be with him and through my name his horn will be exalted. I will set his hand over the sea, his right hand over the rivers. He will call out to me, You are my father, my rock, the rock, my saviour. I will also appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of kings of the earth. I will maintain my love to him forever and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as the heavens endure. If his sons forsake my law and do not follow my statutes, if they violate my decrees and fail to keep my commands, I will punish their sin with the rod, their iniquity with flogging. But I will not take my love from him, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, and I will not lie to David, that his line will continue forever and his throne endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. But you have rejected you have spurned, you have been very angry with your anointed one. You have renounced the covenant with your servant and have defiled his crown in the dust. 
You have broken through all its walls and reduced its strongholds to ruin. You who pass by have plundered him. He has become the scorn of his neighbours. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have turned back the edge of his sword and have not supported him in battle. You have put an end to his splendour and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth and you have covered him with a mantle of shame. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how fleeting is my life. For what futility you have created all men. What man can live and not see death or save himself from the power of the grave? O Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, Lord, how your servant has been mocked, how I bear in my heart the taunts of all the nations, the taunts with which your enemies have mocked, O Lord, with which they have mocked every step of your anointed one. Praise be the... Praise be to the Lord forever. Amen and Amen. Thanks, brother. Well, it's good to be here again this morning, isn't it? So I, uh, I keep thinking, what's, what is that thing that smells like a tree? And I, keep, and I thought, oh, it's the tree. <laughs> there you go. It takes a while, doesn't it, sometimes? To put, it, put all the pieces together. Uh, before we uh, get into the sermon, I was just going to plug uh, Ben and Tina and myself and, and Julian and Mel Dykeman actually went to a conference I wrote about last week in the, in the leaflet where Don Carson spoke and uh, I'm not sure if the talks are up on the Geneva Push website yet but uh, if they are, they're well worth a listen to. It was absolutely fantastic to go. So if you get a chance, just Google the Geneva Push uh, and you can find the talks there. Uh, and it was interesting as well I was just reflecting uh, on Psalm 45, you might remember from last week, uh, talking about God's love for the church uh, and the beauty of the church and the wonder of the church. Uh, And uh, I I, uh, was reflecting on that uh, after this conference because I met up with a teacher uh, that I hadn't seen for 17 years. He used to teach at my school. Uh, And we sat down after lunch uh, on Friday and we just shared what had happened over the last 17 years uh, and it was, just, it was like we'd, we'd never, you know, uh, been apart uh, and we sat down and we prayed for each other's ministry and I just thought, what a wonderful uh, illustration uh, of the beauty of the church and the unity of the church of God. You know, uh, someone who used to be a teacher, 20 years older uh, and yet we're, we're drawn together by uh, the bonds of love in Christ. So I just thought that was a great, a great reminder of the truth from last week's Psalm 45 But we're on to another psalm uh, this morning, which is Psalm 89. And Psalm 89 is not by any means uh, as glorious or as hopeful as Psalm 45, as that picture of uh, the marriage of God and his people. Uh, After the news yesterday about the the massacre in America, uh, it drives home really, doesn't it, that we live in a world where people can't be trusted, now, it's not that everybody uh, can't be trusted, but incidents like that remind us that there's this underlying fear, I suppose, of what might happen. Uh, the whole idea behind terrorism is to instil 
terror in people, which is just another way of saying to reduce the trust that people have for each other. You might have got some of those emails uh, from all different people you know, claiming one thing or another, that uh, they're your best friend stranded in Europe and that they need you to deposit money into their bank account or you might have got those emails purporting to be from your bank you know, asking for your, uh, you know, your bank details and your login and whatever else it is. We live in a world where people are constantly trying to deceive us, to trick us. Not everybody, but the sheer possibility that some people are creates this uh, level of distrust. And Psalm 89 raises the possibility, not that we might not be able to trust people, but Psalm 89 is wrestling with the question of whether or not we can trust God. Uh, the writer of the psalm, Ethan the Ezraite, is, is wrestling with that dilemma. Is God trustworthy? Well, as we go through the psalm, we'll, we'll wrestle with that ourselves. Uh, and what I want to do this morning is, first of all, to kind of work through the psalm to kind of see how it works, how it fits together, and then at the end, think about four things that that shows us about, uh, four things that that teaches us uh, about living in a relationship with God. Well, Ethan uh, the Ezraite, uh, it's a great name, isn't it? I love that. Uh, Ethan the Ezraite uh, begins the psalm and he be- it begins almost determined to praise God. So he says in verse 1 and 2, I will sing of the Lord's great love. With my mouth I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you establish your faithfulness in heaven itself. What is God like? Well, he says God is a God of love, of incredible love and incredible faithfulness. What else is he like? He's exalted above the heavens, verse 5 to 8. The heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness too, in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. O Lord God Almighty, who is like you? You are mighty, O Lord, and your faithfulness surrounds you. It's a picture of God. It's like the king sitting in his chamber with all his attendants, with all the royal majesty. That's God. He's sitting enthroned in heaven. He's exalted above the earth. Not only is he exalted and glorious and majestic, but he rules over the world. Verse 9 to 13. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. You crushed Rahab. Rahab uh, is another, another name for Egypt. Uh, you crushed Rahab like one of the slain. With your strong arm you scattered your enemies. The heavens are yours and yours also the earth. You founded the world and all that is in it. You created the north and the south. Tabor and Hermon sing for joy your name. Your arm is endued with power. Your hand is strong. Your right hand is exalted. What is God like? He's exalted, he's glorious, he's majestic and he rules. When the waves you know, mount up, he stills them. When nations roar, when nations defy God, he brings them down. What is God like? God is majestic, he rules the earth and lastly the people who know God are blessed. He's a God, he's a God who blesses his people. Verse 14 to 18, 
Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, O Lord. They rejoice in your name all day long. They exult in your righteousness, for you are their glory and strength, and by your favour you exalt our horn. Indeed, our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. What is God like? He's loving and faithful, he's exalted, he rules over the world and he blesses his people. And then the psalm delivers us the problem. The rest of the psalm goes on to spell out how God has made a promise that he doesn't seem to have kept. God has made a promise and Ethan the Ezraite is looking around and he's saying to himself, well, where is it, God? I don't, I'm not seeing the effects. And how can that be? How can it be that God can make a promise and not keep it? Because the one thing that we know is that God is powerful and he's faithful. So how can it be? If God is powerful, he can make it happen. And if he's faithful, then he should make it happen. What's going on? Well, the particular promise uh, which the writer is talking about is is God's unfulfilled promise uh, of a king. If you look at verse 3 of Psalm 89, you can see that very early on in the psalm, the writer uh, brings that up. He says, You said, God, you said I made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. This is what he said. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. And that same idea then is picked up again in verse 19. Once you've spoken a vision to your faithful people, you said, I have bestowed strength on a warrior. I have exalted a young man from among the people. I have found David my servant. With my sacred oil, I have anointed him. Verse 27, I will also appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. I will maintain my love to him forever and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as the heavens endure. You see, God, uh, back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God uh, promised to David that he would have a lasting dynasty, that forever one of David's descendants would sit on the throne. Uh, And even despite the sin of David's children, the sin of David's descendants, that would still be the case. So in verse 30, uh, the writer says, if his sons, or God says, the writer's quoting him, God says, if his sons forsake my law and do not follow my statutes, if they violate my decrees and fail to keep my commands, I will punish their sin with the rod, their iniquity with flogging, but I will not take my love from him, nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. So even if David's sons were unfaithful, it doesn't matter. God would maintain David's dynasty, David's children ruling over God's people. But then in verse 38 comes the great question or the great accusation. But you have rejected, the writer says. You have spurned. You have been very angry with your anointed one. You have renounced the covenant with your servant 
and defiled his crown in the dust. You have broken through all his walls and reduced his strongholds to ruins. All who pass by have plundered him. He has become the scorn of his neighbours. The writer is saying, you made the promise but you've despised the promise. You've, You've broken it. You've broken your promise. You've trampled it in the dust. It's a pretty strong accusation, isn't it, to make against God. Uh, God, you've broken your promise. God, you're the great faithful God of the world, but you've broken your promise. It seems uh, likely, though it's not 100% certain, that this psalm is written after the nation of Judah was sent into exile. So if you read the book of Chronicles, uh, actually it might be worth just turning to the end of Chronicles. So uh, Chronicles after Samuel, uh, after Kings, which is after Samuel. So 2 Chronicles 35. Thirty-six, two Chronicles thirty-six. So just just have a look at uh, two Chronicles thirty-six, verse eleven. Zedekiah was twenty-one years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem eleven years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God, and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke the word of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who made him take an oath in God's name. He became stiff-necked and hardened his heart and would not turn to the Lord, the God of Israel. And then in the next chapter, in verse 20, uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes against them uh, and in verse 17 it says, He, God, brought uh, brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or aged. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. And it goes on. So, Chronicles is actually the last book uh, in the Hebrew in the Hebrew Bible. It's in the middle of Nows. But so so Chronicles ends the Old Testament really with this question that Psalm eighty nine has that the, the king of, of, of God's people uh, is carried away into exile. Uh, his children uh, are put to death in front of him, and there's this question: What is God doing? God made a promise that David's one of David's sons would sit on the throne forever, uh, and yet it seems like that promise has been defiled, renounced, broken. The writer of Psalm 89 is saying to God, where's the king that you promised? What have you done? Why aren't you faithful? What's going on? Well, that's the shape of the psalm. Uh, What do we learn from the psalm? Well, there's four things. Four things I think this psalm teaches us. First of all, uh, I think it teaches us Uh, that the idea of a human king is still important. So Psalm 89 actually raises a really thorny question. Uh, If you've been here for the last few weeks, we've been going through the Psalms, you'll uh, probably remember that as we've gone through, we've seen that the great vision is of God as the great king. 
uh, we've seen that human kings are inadequate. Uh, human kings are corrupt, uh, they, like Zedekiah, they do evil. Uh, even the best human kings weren't good enough and the human kings weren't powerful enough. They weren't powerful enough to, to, uh, to put away God's enemies or to, uh, to reform the people or to reform themselves. We've seen that the only one who can lead us back to God is God himself. And we've seen that God is the great king who loves and who makes promises of love uh, and, co- and uh, promises of commitment to his people in, in Psalm 45. But the book of Psalms uh, and the Old Testament, uh, they, they, they show us uh, not only that the human king is inadequate, but they also show us that in some sense they're needed. God had promised that David would have a son to sit on the throne forever. And it turns out that that's important. That's what the writer of Psalm 89 is saying. It's not enough just for God to be king up there, up in, up in heaven. No, we need a king down here as well. We need a human king to reign over us as well. The human king, the the promise to David is important and it wasn't of course until the New Testament that any of that could fully be worked out and put together. It was only in the person of Jesus Christ that God the king and the son of David, a king, came together in the one person. God, Jesus Christ, the son of God and the son of David. Ethan uh, the Ezraite was right it was important that God kept his word to David. It wasn't enough just to go, oh well, the human kings didn't work, we'll just stay with God the king, that'll be enough. No, it was important that they be brought together in the person of Jesus Christ and God did that. God kept that remarkable promise and brought those two remarkable realities together in the most remarkable way. So that's the first thing that this psalm teaches us is that it's not enough just for God to be the king up there. We need a human king. We need both to come together in the person of Jesus Christ. Second, the psalm teaches us that God's patience in bringing about his promises doesn't mean that God is unfaithful. God's patience in bringing his promises about doesn't mean that God is unfaithful. At the end of uh, the psalm in verse 46, The writer asks, How long, O Lord? How long will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Clearly he presumes that at some point God will uh, restore the kingship. And so he asks the question, How long? He doesn't get an answer, but we know. How long would it be? 600 years. That's how long it was from the end of the kingship, at the end of the book of Chronicles, until the time of Jesus. 600 years. But even though it took 600 years, God did fulfil his promise, didn't he? And he went to great lengths to keep his promise. What lengths did he go to? Well, he had to send his own son into the world in order to keep his promise to David. His own son was born into our miserable world. His own son died as our king and was raised to life as our king. 
The world had to wait 600 years but God did it. In our age of instant gratification, that seems like a long time to wait, doesn't it? I wonder how many of you have uh, ordered something on the internet and been almost unable to wait out the three days for it to arrive in the post. (laughs) Or you order it from from overseas. Uh, You know, I, I order a lot of books and I always see if I can order it from Australia, you know, because if I can order it from Australia, then it only comes in two or three days. But if you order it from, you know, Book Depository or Amazon, you know, you're talking two weeks. Uh, you know, and every day the postman comes. <laughs> and is that, uh, has it arrived? You know, or you wait, uh, you wait five minutes in the che- at, at the checkout at the supermarket... And it seems like an eternity. Oh, goodness me. The Bible calls us to wait, doesn't it, for so many things. We don't have to wait for Jesus uh, to come as Messiah. That's already happened. Jesus has already come the first time uh, to be crowned as king. And yet we wait for his return, don't we? We wait for Jesus to come again. We wait for Jesus to put the world right We wait to meet Jesus. We've never seen him face to face. We wait for that day. We wait for Jesus to put an end to to suffering and put an end to death. We wait for Jesus to put an end to misery and to put an end to sin, to put an end to our unrighteousness, to put an end to all the damaged relationships that we have, to put an end to all the regrets We wait for humanity to acknowledge God. We wait for justice and peace. We wait for the day when there will never be any more massacres in primary schools. We wait to see our loved ones who've died in the Lord. Why do we wait? Why does God make us wait? Why did people like Ethan the Ezraite have to wait 600 years to see the fulfilment of what God had promised. Is it because God likes to keep us waiting? Is he kind of this, you know, sadistic person who just likes to make us suffer a bit? Just keep us in our misery? Peter says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. You see, we see God take time in answering our prayers. We see uh, God take time in doing what is promised and we think God is unfaithful. Don't we? We, we pray a prayer. Lord, I pray that you'd work in the heart uh, of my friend or I pray that you'd work in the heart of my mother or my father or my brother or my sister or my colleague or my workmate and God doesn't answer it straight away and we think God is unfaithful. Our life is difficult. We, we encounter some, some difficulty or, or, or great loss and we think that God is unfaithful. But God isn't unfaithful. 
God is patient and doesn't want anyone to perish. Psalm 89 reminds us not only that God wants a human king, a king who knows us, who lives with us, who reigns over us, but it also reminds us that God's slowness isn't because of his unfaithfulness, but because of his great patience and love. The third thing uh, Psalm 89 teaches us uh, really is how to pray. Psalm 89 is is a model of believing prayer. It's a pretty extraordinary prayer, actually, if you, if you think about it. Uh, it's an incredibly abrupt prayer. I don't know if you've ever spoken to God in the same kinds of words as the writer of Psalm 89. Uh, listen to the, that blunt language again in verse 38 and 39. But you have rejected, you have spurned, you've been very angry with your anointed one. You've renounced the covenant with your servant and have defiled his crown in the dust. Not only is Psalm 89 blunt, it also kind of seems almost vaguely manipulative as well. The first part of the psalm uh, is, almost feels like a bit of a setup. You know, God, I will tell the nations of your great love and faithfulness. I'll tell them of your great promises to David. What's going on? Why are you unfaithful? That's basically what he's saying. He starts off saying, you're loving, you're faithful. Why are you unfaithful? Where is your faithfulness gone? But it's, uh, even though it might seem to us like manipulation, it isn't. It's not manipulation because it's not dishonest. God is loving. He is faithful and he has made promises. And it's not trying to get God to do something that he doesn't want to do. That's what manipulation usually is, isn't it? You're trying to get someone to do something that you want. But actually, the writer of Psalm 89 is just trying to get God to do what he's already promised to do, what he's already purposed to do. God has promised to raise up a king and that's what Ethan is saying. He's saying, raise up the king, God. Do what you've promised. Psalm 89 shows us that we can boldly approach God on his own terms, on the terms that he's spelled out. How does that work for us? Well, you might come to God and say something like this. You might pray, Lord, you're a faithful God. Lord, you're a loving God. You always do what you promised. Uh, Your word never returns to you empty. And your word says, whoever comes to me, I will not drive away. Your word says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And God, I've called on your name day and night, but where is your salvation? Your word says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But I've confessed my sin and yet I still seem to be plagued by sin. Lord, my heart seems so dull. You still seem so far off. Remember what you've promised, O God, and hear me, for I ask it in Jesus' name. See, we can come to God with God's own words 
and say to God, God, you promised. You promised if I call on you, you will save me. Lord, please save me. Psalm 89 teaches us to pray bold prayers and to claim God's promises and God's salvation through Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that we uh, don't have to wait. We may have to wait. We may have to wait a lifetime to see God's salvation realised in our life. But God's patience does not mean that God is unfaithful. Well, we've seen now that God's promise of a human king is important, that God's, uh, uh, God's slowness does not mean his unfaithfulness, but his patience. We've seen that uh, we can pray bold prayers to God. And the last thing that this psalm teaches us uh, is that it helps us to see uh, what it is that we're really waiting for. There are lots of things, aren't there? Uh, as, we listed, as I listed before, lots of things that we're waiting for, lots of things that we're waiting for God to do. But there is, I guess, one central thing. What's the main thing that we're waiting for? The one main thing uh, that we're waiting for is the victory and the establishment of God's kingdom. We'll just... One of my lecturers once at the graduation ceremony of all things was sitting up on the stage with all the other lecturers and in the middle of the uh, keynote address his phone rang while he was sitting on the stage. <laughs> it was just hopeless. Anyway. <laughs> so are we up with the three things? We've done three. All right? We're on the fourth. Uh, and the fourth is, what's the main thing that we're waiting for? The main thing that we're waiting for is the victory and the establishment of God's kingdom. The victory uh, of, God's, of, uh, of God's kingdom and the establishment of David's son. You see, this psalm isn't about... Ethan isn't saying in this psalm, God save me. That's not actually what he's praying, is it? He's praying, God establish your king. He's not saying, I'm suffering God, you need to deliver me. He's saying, you've made a promise about a king and you haven't kept it. And he ties his own deliverance to that. Look at verse 47. Remember how fleeting my life is. For what futility have you created all men? What man can live and not see death? or save himself from the power of the grave. O Lord, where is your former great love? What in your faithfulness you swore to David. Do you see what uh, he's saying? He's saying that the purposefulness of his life, the purposefulness uh, of the life uh, of, of everyone in the world and the deliverance, his deliverance and the deliverance uh, of everyone is linked to God's promise to David. To, the, to raising up that king. See, we so easily get distracted by the, by the paraphernalia, by the, the add-on bits, if you like, and we miss the forest for the trees. We pray to God, Lord, save me from my suffering, which is important, you know, not to denigrate that, 
But we forget that there's a bigger program in the world. And the bigger program is Jesus Christ as King ruling over all the creation. God saving you and me from our suffering won't help the people in America who are grieving the loss of their children. And it won't reform American society or Australian society or European society or any other society and it won't stop the wars in Africa. God saving you and me won't do that. What all of us need, what the world needs is a king, a king who reigns, a king who can redeem the world, a king who can redeem us from death, a king who can transform his people. And so Ethan the Ezraite says, God, you've got to do what you've promised. One day, King Jesus will be king over all the world and over all the universe. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, willingly or unwillingly, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when that happens, only when that happens, will all the other pieces fit together. That's what we need most of all, is we need the reign and the rule and the love and the kindness of Jesus to be established in our world. And as much as we pray and we should pray for God to do all the other little bits and pieces, to help us in our struggles, to forgive us for our sins, to help us, to give us joy. Much of we should pray for all those things. The one thing that we should really pray for is for God's King Jesus to be King over all the world. And as we pray, to remember that God's slowness doesn't mean God's unfaithfulness. It means God is patient and loving. Let's pray. Lord, you are a loving and steadfast God and your faithfulness extends through all the world. Lord, you are exalted above the highest heaven. The angels bow down to you and we bow down to you and praise you and honour you in your glory and your majesty. Lord, you rule over our world. There is nothing outside your power. There is nothing too great for you to stop, there is no evil too hideous for you to oppose. There is no sin too big that you can't forgive it. There is no person too far away that you can't bring them back. Lord, thank you that the people who know you are blessed. Lord, thank you that Many of us know you and have known the joy and the peace and the gladness which comes from a reconciled relationship with you. Lord, thank you that you have been faithful to your promise to David. Lord, thank you that you promised a king and you've delivered a king. A king crowned not on a throne but on a cross. And Lord, thank you that one day he will come 
and be installed as king over all the earth. Lord, as we look at our world, as we look at our own brokenness, as we look at the brokenness of those around us, Lord, we say, please keep your promise and restore and redeem this world and this universe. Lord, teach us to wait and teach us, Lord, as we wait that you want many people to be restored to you. Lord, help us to share the gospel in whatever way we can, to minister where we are, to do what you've called us to do. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.